Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. Hey folks, this is Pastor Joel and I want to welcome you to another special edition of the Covenant Podcast. I hope you're having a great day and especially if you are part of our Covenant family, this is going to be an interesting episode because it is a response to a ton of questions that our pastors have been getting from you all. And it would make sense that we're getting this, these sorts of questions from you around the issue of biblical prophecy. Uh, you know, normally when there's any kind of unrest in the world, warfare, uh, the, wondering where the world's going to go, there's also along with that an accompanying rise uh, in wonder about the end of the world. Um, and so the, anytime there's unrest in the world, that happens. But there's a level of unrest right now that we've probably not seen in many, many years. And more particularly, there's a level of unrest in the nation of Israel that we haven't seen since the early 1970s. And so that has understandably created a lot of questions in your mind. Now, maybe you're new to the Christian faith and you're watching all of this happen and you're part of our church family or maybe just the wider Christian community and you've got a question in your mind. Why do evangelical Christians get all spun up every time something happens in Israel? Or maybe you're entrenched in the Christian faith and you sort of naturally ask because you've been in baptized in that faith, aren't we supposed to get spun up when something happens in Israel? So uh, this and one additional special edition of the podcast are going to answer two questions. Today, I'm going to ask, uh, I'm going to address this question. Does modern Israel play any kind of prophetic role in the world? That's question number one. And next week, when we look at the other question, it's basically this one. Are we close to the end of the age? Um, and so, with, with again, all the unrest in the world, and especially around Israel, uh, that's the one that we want to cover first. And so let's begin with the origins of ancient Israel. Why is it that evangelicals do tend to get spun up every time something happens in Israel? Because Israel has a rich history. Our Jewish neighbors are where we find the roots even of our own faith. And so all of that begins back in Genesis chapter 12. We see it repeated again in Genesis chapter 17. Uh, and then we see these promises that were given to this nation throughout the rest of the Old Testament. There's this ancient nation at the center of all of that history. And, and it starts with a man named Abram. Abram is called from Haran and he is told by God that First off, I've chosen you to be the father of a nation of people. So there's a new ethnic group that's going to arise from your loins that did not exist before. They will be large in number. God even says in Genesis 12, Genesis 17, look at the sands on the beach, look at the stars in the sky. That's how great their number will be. And then the final promise that he makes to Abram is this, through you and those that come from your loins, this new ethnic group, Every nation on the planet is going to be blessed. And then we see that history start filling out in what we call the Old Testament. Abraham becomes the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob. Uh, and then in Genesis 32, Jacob wrestles with the Lord, walks away a changed man. 
also walks away with a brand new name. God tells him after that wrestling match, your name is no longer Jacob. Your name is Israel. And this is the first time we see that word in the Old Testament. And translated accurately into English, it simply means prince of God. And so Israel will have 12 sons. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. And it is those 12 sons who will have families of their own, and they will produce the 12 tribes of a new group of people, a new ethnic group called Israelites. Now, by the time all these men have large families of their own, you, you have this large group of people, but they don't have land of their own to settle in. And in fact, the whole clan at this point in history is taking refuge in Egypt from a regional famine. One generation after that, they've multiplied and grown to the point that the new pharaoh in Egypt is concerned and afraid that they may try to take over his country. And so he makes a, a very quick, very radical move to have them enslaved. And the Israelites will remain in that enslaved condition for the next 400 years until the time of Moses. Moses then leads them out of Egypt. But because of their rebellion, they will wander in the Sinai Peninsula for an entire generation before Moses' successor Joshua finally leads them to conquer Canaan and settle in the land that God promised them. So that's sort of a thumbnail sketch of how this nation began. From the time God made his promise to Abraham until that nation actually appears and settles in the land that was promised them, that's a period of roughly 600 years. And that then establishes what we know in the Old Testament as the ancient nation of Israel, through whom God promised the whole world will, we, will be blessed through you. And that ancient nation, through the Old Testament, we see it survive its own division within itself, uh, as they really don't have a civil war, but they divide into two countries. We see them survive the enslavement at the hands of two great empires, the Babylonian and the Persian, and the occupation of a third, the Romans, before we finally see what we as Christians believe is the, the fullness of the promise to Abraham, and that is the, the ultimate Israelite, the person of Jesus. But when Jesus appears, those of us who are his followers believe he fulfilled all the promises that God made centuries earlier to Abraham. Jesus was the promised Messiah. He dies, he is buried, he rises again, he ascends to the Father, and he promises to return for us one day. All of that happens about 70 years before we see ancient Israel completely disappear from the planet. The Roman general Titus lays siege to the city of Jerusalem. He levels the temple, and the Israelites lose their home. And from that point, they wander. They settle in diverse lands, places like Yemen, Morocco, Spain, Germany, Poland, and even deep into Russia. And, and this is the point at which I want to make a really important distinction. The nation of Israel, when we use that word nation in the modern world, that modern verbiage means usually that we're referring to uh, a group of people that are surrounded by borders, that have a body of law that they follow, a military that defends them. Um, here's what you need to know. In that sense of the term, nation disappears. But in the sense that nation means ethnic people group, the Jews never did. So the nation of Israel, that ancient Davidic-ruled monarchy that had a military and a body of law and borders, it doesn't exist anymore, but the Israelites, or Jews, as they're called by this point in history, 
never ceased to exist and they would continue for the next 2,000 years to live in the world. Now fast forward now to the year 1917. World War I is about to come to an end within a year of ending. The Ottoman Empire, modern day Turkey, has been defeated and is no more. And there is a letter drafted by the British Foreign Secretary. His name is Arthur Balfour. And Balfour writes a letter to a Jewish banker in England. His name is Walter Rothschild. And it's in that letter that Secretary Balfour described strong British support that the Jews need a land and a country of their own. And this letter would become known in history as the Balfour Declaration. And this becomes the initial statement of support for a modern state in which the Jews can both inhabit and control. And over the course of the next 30 years, support for that state's gonna grow. And especially this will be true throughout World War II, especially as the, the curtain is pulled back on everything that the Germans had done and the horrors of the Holocaust become known and sympathy grows for persecuted Jews. All of this culminates on May the 15th, 1948. That's the day that modern Israel, as we know her now, was established and admitted into the United Nations. Now here's the problem and what has caused so much division since that point. That state is established in an area where people have already been living for a long, long time. And that area is called Palestine. So hopefully that gives you a little sense of the history. So if you hear references in the media, for example, to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, that's what it's referring to. And so here's the question that emerges from that history. And the key term that I want you to hear is, and my apologies in advance for uh, this long kind of complicated phrase, but the key term is the word coterminous. That's a compound word that means like having the same boundaries or extent in space, time, or meaning. Co is a word that just simply means together. Terminus is the word that means to end. And so to be coterminous is to have the same identity and end as another. Now, why am I unpacking all of this? Because if we're going to answer the question of whether Israel has prophetic significance, in order to gauge that, we have to simply ask, are ancient Israel and modern Israel coterminous? Are they essentially the same country with the same end? Is the modern expression that, we, that you and I see in the Middle East with that blue star of David flag flying over it simply a reincarnated version of the ancient country that you and I read about in our Old Testament? And at the end of the day, even though there's admittedly a lot of nuance around this, this discussion, there really are only two answers. You either answer that yes or no. So let me unpack for you those two positions uh, and give you some history behind that as well. Then I'll just be honest with you and lay my cards on the table and then kind of describe for you how our church deals with this question. Those who answer this question, yes, who would say ancient Israel and modern Israel are coterminous, they are one in the same country with the same end, have a name. They are called dispensationalists. And when a dispensationalist looks at the story of the Bible, he or she sees a sharp distinction between the nation of Israel as a people and the New Testament church. And you just need to know that that teaching has a, a very brief history that first originated in 1830 with a brethren pastor in Great Britain. His name was John Nelson Darby. 
Darby taught God had two peoples with two plans and two destinies. One of those people was Israel. The other group of people was the New Testament church. Darby further taught that as we get toward the end of history and closer to the return of Jesus, God would turn his attention almost exclusively back toward his people Israel in order to win them to their true Messiah. And that one of the ways he would do this, one of the ways he would turn his attention exclusively to Israel would be to remove his other people, the church, from the world. And from that emanated this doctrine of the rapture of the church. Rapture comes first, according to Darby. The church is taken out of the way. Then that's followed by seven years of tribulation. All of that with the intention of getting the Jews to believe in their Messiah as well as to judge the world, followed at the end of that period by the second coming of Jesus. Now, for some of you, that may be the only end time scenario you've ever heard of. And you're wondering, are there others out there? There are. And they are varied and they are much, much older than this one. And so if you're wondering why you've been in a bit of a bubble, well, there's a reason for that as well. Darby's teachings, starting in 1830, would make their way from Britain to the United States and eventually would be published by one of his students, a Presbyterian pastor named Cyrus Ingerson Schofield. And it would be presented in a single volume that some of you may even still have in your homes. It was called the Schofield Reference Bible. The first edition of that published in 1909. It was the very first study Bible of its kind, a single volume work that could be used not only by pastors, but by lay people. And so, as you can imagine, a tool like that of that kind of caliber and quality in the early 20th century became very popular very quickly. And so its influence spread very, very quickly. Here's what you need to know, just to be historically aware and honest. No one had ever taught anything like this prior to 1830. That doesn't make it untrue, but when we're looking at the history of ideas, we, we need to be honest about how novel some of those ideas are. Now, the other thing you should know is that this whole end time scenario, rapture followed by tribulation, followed by second coming, is dependent on two things being true. The first is that the church in Israel do need to be separate peoples and the second thing that needs to be true is there needs to be a coterminous relationship established between the ancient nation of Israel and some modern state that will emerge in the future. So hopefully you're starting to see now how all of these historical timelines sort of converge in 1948 when modern Israel becomes a state. And those who are already kind of predisposed to this idea would just simply and naturally say, there it is, right? This is the, this is the nation we've been waiting on. So, so those who would say that Israel is prophetically significant because it is ancient Israel, the two are coterminous, they're called dispensationalists. But then there are those who answer that question with a no. We don't believe these are the same country with the same end. Those individuals are called covenantalists. And covenantalists believe that believing Israel, meaning Jews who like you and me, except Jesus is our Messiah, and the church are actually not two peoples, but they're one people with one destiny. They reject the notion of a coterminous relationship between ancient and modern Israel. So that might bring those of you that are listening and are a part of our church family to this question. Well, what does covenant believe? And the truth of the matter is we have advocates of both schools of thought among our elders and deacons, among church leaders, 
So we don't divide over this difference. And in, in order for us not to divide, we don't take an official church position on the matter. And some of you are already thinking, well, you took me through all this complicated history, and now you're telling me that you don't even have a position on it as a church, so why are we even talking about it? Well, one of the reasons is because it's relevant to the questions that we've been getting from many of you, uh, especially since that horrible terrorist attack by Hamas took place on our Israeli neighbors earlier this month. And, and while we don't think our disagreements around this are worth dividing our church over, we do think the question is worth addressing, especially with so many folks believing that these events might be connected somehow to the imminence of the second coming. So let me point to the dangers that each of these positions just needs to be aware of. And then the last thing I'll do here is I'll put my own cards on the table and just tell you what I believe while being very clear, I'm not representing our elders or our church in this. I'm just going to be honest with you. So if you are a dispensationalist, if you're inclined to believe that ancient Israel and modern Israel are one and the same, that the promises to one are going to be fulfilled in the other, uh, you are certainly free to believe that. That is within the bounds of orthodoxy, but there's a danger. And that danger is in an extreme form of Zionism that might cause you to reflexively view non-Jewish people in this part of the world automatically as an enemy to be defeated. So when we talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, if you're a dispensationalist, you want to be very careful not to just default to think that Palestinians are the enemy, because they're not. They're image bearers of God. If you're a follower of Jesus, you believe they're people from whom Jesus gave his life. Jesus died to save people from every nation, tongue, and tribe. And furthermore, it's also helpful to remember that among the Palestinian population, are a number of Palestinian and Arab Christians. I've talked to some of them in the last couple of weeks. Palestinian pastors that find themselves in the middle of all of this mess. And so when we pray, uh, as we should, because Psalm 122 tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, but we need to remember that's not merely for our Jewish neighbors. It's also for everyone else that's occupying that part of the world, including many of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and so if you are inclined to believe that ancient Israel and modern Israel are coterminous, and therefore modern Israel in all likelihood does bear a lot of prophetic significance, uh, you need to guard yourself from cheering on any kind of violence or warfare that you might think would fulfill biblical prophecy. All right, Because in the, in the first place, if you're wrong about that, then you've warmongered and advocated for, frankly, some very dangerous foreign policy. And if you're right, these things are prophetic, and if you're right about them, well, they're going to happen with or without your advocacy, so why do you even need to advocate? Uh, and so if you're honest, you really can't be 100% sure, uh, and some humility is probably in order there. So just, just be aware of that particular slippery slope that can lead to a danger on the dispensationalist side. Now, where a dispensationalist is at risk of falling into a dangerous form of Zionism, a covenantalist has a whole different problem. The danger in covenantalism is anti-Semitism. Uh, and most often that comes from a subset of covenant theology called replacement theology. Not merely to say that believing Jews in the church are one, but to say that the church replaced Israel and that God is now punishing the Jews and has been for 2,000 years because of their rejection of the Messiah. 
And you just need to know our history as a church has taught us that there has been a lot of persecution of our Jewish neighbors by Christians over the centuries driven by this belief. Horrible things have been said by our own ancestors. Uh, in fact, I'm ashamed to tell you, even though I just got back from Germany recently, that Martin Luther was one of those guilty parties. Toward the end of his life, after failing to being a, be able to convert some of his Jewish neighbors, he grew very angry, and he wrote a pamphlet that you can still find today, simply entitled, On the Jews and Their Lies. Um, and there's just no other way to describe the, the horrific things that he wrote except to say that they are anti-Semitic. Uh, and we have to be honest about that hatred and the consequences that it brought to our Jewish neighbors in the world all the way up in, into the modern age. So again, both sides of this debate have some things they have to take care, some traps, if you were, that they have to take care they don't fall into. And honestly, one of the reasons I think it's healthy that we have advocates of both views in our church is because it keeps all of us from moving to an extreme position. I like that there are fellow elders in our church uh, who don't agree with me because we get to check each other like that, all right? But having covered all of that now, I will reveal to you that between the two, your lead pastor is a covenantalist. Now, what does that mean? It means that when I look at the modern state of Israel, uh, particularly in light of its modern history, having begun with the Balfour Declaration in 1917 and moving forward, I believe that modern state has a right to exist, has a right to defend itself as the only Jewish homeland on the planet, the only democratic ally our nation has in the Middle East. Uh, I believe it gives greater definition, furthermore, to Jewish identity and culture. And honestly, as an evangelical Christian whose faith would not even exist without its historical connection to Judaism, I'm thankful for the state of Israel. But I do not believe that the modern state of Israel is merely the rebirth of ancient Israel. They are not, in my view, coterminous nations. Let me give you a few reasons that I believe that. Uh, the first is simply the tribal differences that exist between the two. Ancient Israel, as I said in the beginning of the podcast, consisted of 12 tribes. Modern Israel is, to a large extent, only the tribe of Judah. Now, if you want to know why that is, you have to go all the way back to 722 B.C. When the Assyrian army invaded the northern kingdom of Israel, they were split in two. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And the Assyrian army, when they conquered people, they would scatter them and then they would intermarry with them. In fact, the, the ancient Samaritan race came from that uh, military approach. And so to this day, those ten tribes are still scattered all over the world. Modern Israel is a wonderful nation, but if we're going to be honest, it could also rightly be called modern Judah. And the title might even be more accurate. And so we're not looking, when we compare ancient Israel with modern Israel, we're, we're just not looking even at the same ethnic makeup. Secondly, there are structural differences. We're not looking at the same structural makeup. Uh, if the promises to ancient Israel are to be fulfilled in modern Israel, then you would think uh, modern Israel would look a whole lot like ancient Israel, but it doesn't. Uh, even the promises to ancient Israel assume a particular structure, that of a monarch who is ruling a theocracy. And you see that promise in 2 Samuel. The promise to David was, there will always be someone from your line occupying the throne of Israel. Well, modern Israel has no throne. 
It's a parliamentary system patterned after the British. Additionally, evangelical Christians, be they dispensational or covenantal, would agree that the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant is Jesus himself, who was king of the Jews, who today sits on a throne in heaven. Modern Israel, in my view, simply cannot be the fulfillment of that promise. And the last difference that I see in this are religious differences. Ancient Israel was, as a supermajority, a monotheist nation with a very distinct religious practice that the nation observed almost unanimously. Modern Israel consists of four major religious groups. There's the Helani. Those are the secular Jews. They're, they're really not religious at all. Many of them even agnostic or atheist. There's the Mazorti. These are the traditional practitioners of Judaism. The Dati, the religiously observant. And the Haredi. Those are the ultra-Orthodox. And Pew Research tells us that the current demographic makeup of the modern nation state of Israel consists of 49% Heloni, which means half of that country is, a, has, is of a secular mindset. So your pastor's conclusion, your lead pastor's conclusion is, this is a wonderful country. It's a rightful ally of the United States, but it's not the same country to whom God made these ancient promises that we see in the Old Testament. You say, well, okay, well, if that's true, then why did you call us a few weeks ago, Pastor, to a special prayer service over Israel? Why should we support it? That's a great question. And the answer is, because although I don't believe the two nations are coterminous, I also believe you can't read Romans 9, 10, and 11 and come away with any other conclusion than that God does have a kind future intention for our Jewish neighbors as we reach the end of the age. I just don't happen to believe that he needs a nation with borders and a body of law and a military to get that done. It's not the nation state that Paul is speaking of in Romans. It's the nation. In fact, he uses the Greek word ethnos there. We get our word ethnic from it. It's the Jewish people, not just in Israel, but wherever they may be found on the planet. God has not replaced them with the church but God also does not have a separate program and destiny for them. God intends, according to Paul's words in Romans 9, 10, and 11, to bring them to himself in the same way that he brought you and me to himself. So I hope that's helpful. I, I apologize. I know that was kind of long and, and a bit convoluted. History tends to be that way. Um, and of course, the next question is, do these recent events mean that we are closer to the end of the age? I would answer that question with, I don't think that's necessarily true. I could be wrong. Either way, Jesus encourages us when we see war and rumors of war, the kinds of things that really have been unprecedented in my adult lifetime, to look up because your redemption draws near. And in the next episode, I'm gonna talk about that particular sermon. Matthew chapter 24. I look forward to seeing you during that special edition. For now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. I love you, Covenant, and I'll see you next time. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, 
I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.